0: Okay, amazing. So uh, I'm preaching this morning. I have the privilege of preaching on the, the incarnation. We're one week away from Christmas, which is uh, an exciting time. And I have to be honest, if uh, Linda hadn't left now, this confession would be an open confession to her. I'm one of those people who thinks it's a great idea to make much of special days like birthdays, anniversaries, but I'm so useless at making much of them. In fact, Linda and I had our 30th wedding anniversary in um, September, and we still haven't celebrated, but the plans are underway. They're afoot. Um, and I, am, yeah, I know it's terrible, eh? it's bad. But, um, but it might be the reason, might explain a little bit my mentality, why I'm so bad actually at um, when it comes to the Christian calendar. So I don't know if you know that the, the church has got all these calendars, these special moments in them, and I'm just rubbish at remembering them, in part, I think, because I, I didn't grow up in a religious home, and so I didn't grow up knowing what Lent was, or what Palm Sunday was, or any of those kind of things, but there were two holidays, though, that hit my, my kind of um, hall of fame when it comes to holidays, and one was Christmas, and one was Easter, and if I'm to be honest, it wasn't because of anything spiritual, it was because of the presents and the chocolate eggs, and so there was those two things that we were going to celebrate no matter what, you know, but as I've led the church over the years, um, I've actually remained kind of a little bit unimpressed in many ways about how helpful it is to keep these different days and festivals and it's because in part Paul says in Colossians that special days and festivals or keeping those special days and festivals doesn't make us holier than anybody else and so sometimes we think well if I remember this and this and this then I'm going to be this holy person but the Bible tells us it's not like that at all but there are three moments In the year that I think are essential reminders for us as believers in our journey of faith, and one is Easter, obviously, and not for the for the chocolate eggs, as I've come to realise and become keto and no longer eat chocolate, but um, but because on that Friday we we remember soberly the crucifixion of our Lord and Saviour, and we and we do it with this understanding that He is of what He suffered and what and why He suffered because of our sin, and then on the Sunday we celebrate with extravagant joy. I mean, like jumping. I've often thought when I get to heaven one day, I'm going to be able to worship God like a firework. Do you know what I, mean? I feel like I'm going to be able to fly in the air and then just explode into sparks like this and then come back together again. It's just like, how do, how do we express our gratitude and love and our joy for what He's done? And that's what happens when we remember the resurrection. And the, the second date is Pentecost, which is not a normal one. We don't have a big public holiday for it, but such an important day when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the waiting disciples, and we sang about it today, the church was born, and it was sent out from that day with this good news, and it's because of that sending out that many of us, are for in fact, every one of us are sitting here today, because that message has come to us through somebody, and then lastly, what we celebrate over this next week, which is Christmas, the virgin birth, the word becoming flesh, um, and the incarnation, and uh, Luke writes about this, and he talks about how Mary um, was, was approached by an angel and told and given this news um, about the, the baby that would be born to her, which is, would be the Son of God. And I want to read that passage and one from Luke as well. And then I want to go this morning and look at the book of Hebrews. And so the narrative story is told to us, and we've heard that many times over Christmas. But I want us to step back with the right of Hebrews and, and understand what the incarnation is and how it applies to us and, and what our response perhaps should be to it. Over these next few days. So Luke chapter 1, verse 30 to 38, and then Luke chapter 2, 10 to 12. The angel says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, And the angel departed from her. And then Luke chapter 2, when the angels come to the shepherds, and it says, The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So I, I spent this week preparing, obviously, for this Sunday. And uh, one of the things that I, I wanted to get down was a definition of sorts of the incarnation. Like we know technically, I guess, what it means is that God, who is a spirit being, put on humanity, put on flesh and blood. But, but what does it mean for us? What is it that I want you to walk away with in understanding? And, and this is what I wrote down. I said, the incarnation is a supernatural work of profound identification with humanity and the perfect revelation of God without which our deliverance would be impossible for a God who is just. Can I read that again? It is a supernatural work of profound identification with humanity and the perfect revelation of God without which our deliverance would be impossible for a God who is just. And that's a lot to remember and none of you are going to actually be able to say that in the car on the way home. Hey, how's that definition? And so as always, it's a good idea to kind of Pair it down a little bit, and come up with something that is more easier to hold on to. And uh, based on what Dylan preached last week, and the quote that he brought to us from Tim Keller, which I thought was incredibly powerful, I think this would be a good small version of the incarnation, that it is God's outrageous pursuit of His wayward children. In that quote from Tim Keller, he says, Christianity is unique among all religions, for it is about God's pursuit of us to draw us to himself. In every other religious system, people pursue their God, hoping that through good behavior, keeping of rituals, good works, or other efforts, they will be accepted by the God that they pursue. Now the word outrageous, I, I toyed around, is that the right word there? Because outrageous means like it actually makes me a little bit angry. Do you know what I mean? Like it's like, it, like it causes me to be like, that's ridiculous, the outrageous pursuit of his children. But actually from the point of view of people that are religious or proud or self-righteous, the whole idea of the incarnation is outrageous. It offends us to think that we might need someone to rescue us. When I've done something wrong, like, like I'll take care of it. If I made a mess, I'll fix the mess. I don't need you doing this on behalf of me. I don't need you, God, to come and do this. I'll, if I've sinned, I'll pay the price of my sin. That's just self-righteousness. It also offends Many people that think that God, that the holy God would stoop to become a human being, to be born of a woman and to become so vulnerable that he would be um, subject to pain, hunger, tiredness, and even death. It's also outraged in the sense of value. I don't know what you guys are like. I've got this inbuilt sense of value. I, I don't mind spending money on something that's worth it. And so I could spend 1000 bucks or 10000 bucks buying a bicycle because they would definitely be worth it. We know that they would be from. <laughs> But I hate it, <laughs> but I hate when I spend even a small amount of money and it's not worth it. So, like, like, for example, I can go away and stay at a hotel and pay that amount of money, and it's a good room. I go, okay, that's fair, but if I pay the same amount of money for something that's horrible, then I, like, I'm, I'm crazy. I, I bought something from Amazon a little while ago from China. Don't. I mean, I know it all comes from China, but don't buy from that Chinese company on Amazon. They send me the wrong thing, and then in order to return it, I had to send it to China I had to pay for the postage back to China to return the thing. And it was 80 dirham. And I spent about, I don't know how, what my time is worth, but way more time there trying to get value back. And you stole my 80 dirham. Anyway, I didn't get it back. I'm just outraged by that. But in some ways, we have that same sense. Like, how can the God, the creator of heaven and earth, take on flesh and blood and pay the price that Jesus paid for what? For the created, for us who were who were made by him. This is the the creator God, and we are made, and we are sinful and fallen, and it makes no sense to us. It's outrageous that he would pay that price to win us back again. But it is outrageously generous. It's outrageously gracious. It is literally the ultimate gift that God would send his son. And it's a little wonder then that we celebrate Christmas by the giving of gifts. I know it goes overboard, but there is a reminder to us as we exchange gifts with one another that we have received the ultimate gift and the ultimate joy. So what is happening in the incarnation? Um, and we see now by the, the, the author of the, the book of Hebrews, he writes this in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. He says, Since therefore the children, and those are those that belong to God, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And I'll speak about the fear of death in a moment. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful. And faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to find those who are being tempted. On, our, on the road that comes to the church, Mirabea here, if you, if you drove up that way, on one of the warehouses, actually I'm not even sure if it's there anymore, it was there for many years, I think they might have painted over it now. Somebody had put graffiti on the wall there, which is super unusual, because you just don't see graffiti often in Dubai Anyway. But it was the the message of this graffiti that struck me when I read it for the first time. And actually, there was before we'd even rented this place as our warehouse. I remember seeing that graffiti on, on the road. And it said this on the wall, salivating for some kind of salvation. And there is a hunger in humanity for salvation, whatever that means for people. This desire for peace, this desire for order, the desire for a society that might reflect something of that. A sense of meaning, a sense of belonging. But ultimately, we understand that, uh, that what, it, what salvation really is, is a reconciliation with our creator God. That the one who made us desires for us to be in a relationship with him, but we've been separated from him. And he wants to restore that relationship. That's what salvation is. And this passage that I read now is, is a part of a, 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 like a case that the writer of Hebrews is making. Yeah, he's, he's, he's wanting to tell us that Jesus is the savior that we need. That that person that wrote on the wall, they're salivating for some kind of salvation. He needs to meet Jesus. And that Jesus has finished that work of salvation and has now sat down at the right hand of the Father. So that there's no more work left for us to do. As Royston started the meeting today, we are free. We've been liberated. And, and we've been invited into the rest that the writer of Hebrews speaks about. And he, he, he writes this message. and because it's of the utmost importance to those that were hearing it then to understand rightly what it is that Christ has accomplished, and the utmost importance for us today as well. And he starts off, as he makes his argument, by contrasting the the previous message that was given with the new message that is given. And he says in Hebrews chapter 2, and if you've got your Bible open, you can just keep it open in Hebrews 1 and 2, although they will be up here as well. Um, He starts off by saying that um, the old covenant was declared to us by angels. And so the messengers of the old covenant was the angels that brought it to us. And it proved to be reliable. In other words, the message that they gave was true. This is God telling the people who he was. And he was saying that I'm a holy God and I need you to live as holy people. I need you to live righteously. And this is how you live righteously. You worship only me. And you know, um, do not murder, do not steal, etc., etc. And cetera. Uh, and, and that proved to be true. And there were consequences when, we, when you... Um, lived that way and consequences when you transgressed the law. There were blessings when you kept to the law and there, were, there, were, there was punishment when you didn't keep to the law. And that's what he says, yeah. He says that every transgression or disobedience received a just rep- retribution. Not, not too much, not too little, but a just retribution, a just punishment for the sin. And the law judged in this life, but the law was pointing towards the judgment that was to come in the... Um, after we die, which David speaks about often in the Psalms. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, it says this It is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes the judgment. And uh, the prophet Hosea, we've just done a series through Hosea for those of you that haven't been a part of it. Love the book. And, and in chapter 13 and verse 14, the prophet says, He says, where, he, says uh, he speaks about the sting of Sheol. And Sheol is the world of the dead. So the sting of death. And and he, he speaks about God's promise of redemption, and he says, where, O death, is your sting? It's which Paul picks up in 1 Corinthians 15 as well. Where, O death, is your sting? And what he's speaking about is that we die, but when we die in our sins, then, we, then that's where the sting is. He's not, it's not dying that's the problem. It's dying and then facing the judgment that is a sting. All men die. All of us obviously will, or men and women. I mean that together. Um, but our death is not into some black ob- oblivion. It's not an eternal sleep as if they weren't tragic enough. I had um, I to, a number of years ago, put one of my dogs down because he had got old and blind and it was time for him to uh, end his existence on earth. And um, for those that believe the dog goes to heaven, and you can come chat to me about that afterwards. Don't be offended by what I say now. But um, so I took the, my dog, his name was Haggis, to the, um, to the vet to put him down. And so the lady said to me, do you want to come in while we put him to sleep? So I thought, well, with integrity, I really should. You know, I can't just kind of drop them for the counter. And so I, I went in. And so she injected haggis. And haggis kind of just started slumping to the side like this. And then she started crying. I thought, lady, how can you be crying? This is your job. Like, you must do uh, How many of these do you a day? And you have to go through this emotional turmoil every time. Anyway, I ended up crying as well. But it was not my fault. She was crying first, okay? <laughs> and, uh, and as I kind of walked out into the car park, I think to myself, like, like why am I emotional? Like, I'm not, I'm very pragmatic. I know that it's a dog. I know that it doesn't have a soul. I, I, but it has a personality. It has, a, like, a, like, he was a, the fat, stupid one of our two dogs. You know what I mean? Like, and he had a cute, fat, stupid personality. That was just who he was. He was like, he was like dumb and he walked into stuff. And, and then we had another dog called Jessie and she was amazing like this. And, and so we contrasted him. But he was gone now. He was, he was gone. I would never see. I would never encounter him again. That personality doesn't come out. I, I don't one day see him in heaven. And so the idea that we were dying, just going to nothing, is is tragic. But as tragic as it is, it's still preferred to be to be put in the place where our accounts are settled when we are when we die in our sin. To be in the place where every transgression and disobedience will receive its just retribution. And so this is what he speaks about when he says we live under the fear of death, in slavery to the fear of death. But the writer of Hebrews says, but there's another message, friends. And that's the point of this book. There is another message and another messenger. And so the two questions we need to ask is, what is the message? And is it also reliable? The old one proved to be reliable. The one brought to us by angels. Um, but, and it was that God is holy and we need to live holy lives. And if we don't live holy lives, we'll face the punishment for it. But what is the new message? And is it, uh, is it also true? Well, the message is what was told to the shepherds. When they, uh, when they were in the field, and it said, it is good news of great joy for all people. In Hebrews 2, 3, um, the writer calls it a message of great salvation. And it's the answer to that fatal disease called sin that causes all people to anticipate that sting of death. It's this remarkable news that the, the lambs and the goats that were sacrificed and all their blood put upon the altars by so many high priests to make atonement for people was only temporary it was only a, a, a staying of what was to come. and was a prophetic picture to the the great sacrifice that would one day be made, and so that text that we read in Hebrews is actually telling us that Jesus is walking in the footsteps of the high priests that have come before him, and so in the same way the high priest would come before God into the temple. If this is the the the, the um, what do you call it, the curtain of the most holy place, and outside was the altar. And it says, once a year, the high priest would take the blood of the sacrifice and he would put it on the altar like this to make atonement for himself and the people. And he was representing the people as he went in. And so if I was the high priest and I'm not, and you were the people, I would come in as one needing atonement and representing a people that need atonement before the holy God. And I would take the blood of those goats and I would put it on the altar. And now the Bible says Christ comes as that high priest, except he is not the one that needs atonement because he has lived a perfect and sinless life. And he is not offering the blood of lambs or of goats, but he's offering his own blood as we remember today when we we had communion together. And so what it says is that he himself would be offered to make propitiation for the sins of people. Propitiation is one of those words, hey, like what does that mean, man? And we make it like it's the hardest to understand theological word on earth, and it's not I mean, we can say words like pre- precipitation, and that just means that it's raining, which doesn't happen often in Dubai. So we can say the word propitiation. It's not a popular word. There's many Christians that don't like this word. There's many theologians that don't like this word. And that's because it has, this, it, it's, it has a connotation or has been used to describe the, the placating or satisfying of a spiteful, arbitrary deity. And so the idea of propitiation that often is in the minds of people when they use this word is like we've seen in movies, like whatever, I, I can't remember which movie this was, I remember seeing it, they took the virgin, and they kind of tied her to this pole at the edge of the, this, this cliff like this, and out from the dark depths came this demon creature that, that ate the virgin, and was satisfied by her blood, and like this, this anger now that it was going to be poured out upon them has been, has been um, made low, and, and the beast is satisfied. But the use of that word propitiation in the New Testament, and especially in Romans chapter three and elsewhere, carries an entirely different implication. Let me explain why. Because propitiation in the New Testament tells us that God is both the one that demands satisfaction and the one that provides satisfaction. He is both the one that demands that justice is done and the one who tastes death in the scripture we read um, for everyone. And now before you dismiss justice, because some people say, you know what, I don't need a God of justice, I just want a God of mercy. Of course I've messed up, I understand that, but like why is he, like why is he making a thing about it? Like he's God, doesn't it affect him? Tell him to just, he should just forgive me and, and when I die, let me just go live with him or whatever it is. But friend, how can you trust the word of an unjust God? If God sweeps lies and deception under the carpet like this, how can we trust that he will keep his word when we come stand before him one day? How can we trust that when Jesus said upon the cross, it is finished, that it actually is finished? How can we entrust ourselves to a God that we don't know what His nature is like, that He doesn't uphold justice? Is He just? Will He be just to us for all eternity? And the reason that we can trust God is precisely because He is holy, and that uh, He is without wickedness or injustice. Plus, this is not a choice that God makes. God can't turn on or turn off injustice. We can do that. We can turn on Justice when it applies to us. Oh, they were so wrong the way the person treated me. And then turn it off when we think about the way that we've treated other people. We turn it on when it's about our people and the decisions our people are making. And turn it off when it's about somebody else's people. But God cannot. He is always just. He is loving and just always. And so he will not leave those that have been violated or oppressed or stolen from without justice. Doesn't matter what you've been through, friends doesn't matter what injustice has been inflicted upon you. God will not leave you without justice. And he will not allow those that have perpetuated injustice to go scot-free. And he will not allow us, if we have been the ones that have acted unjustly, to get away with it. Every injustice will one day be judged before the throne of God. And will be utterly dealt with, condemned, either through the just retribution that those that have died without Christ will receive in the life to come. Or for those that have come faith in Christ, in Jesus Christ, his own flesh on the cross. And that's why it says he tasted death for everyone. And so that's how God is able to be both just and merciful by laying down his own life for us. And so the question then, if that's the message, is, is it true? Is it reliable? Can we depend upon it? And uh, the writer of Hebrews answers the question first by differentiating the, the messenger of the new message from the messengers of the old message. The old message, which was delivered by angels, he said, proved to be reliable, and every um, disobedience and transgression received just retribution. He said, How much more, or how can we not pay attention to so great a salvation that has been announced to us by God's own Son? In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, he says, In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, which, as we read, came in the flesh. The question these that we receiving this letter probably were asking and the, and the question the writer was answering is was he really the son of God or was he some created spiritual being there are only really three types of beings that we know about from scripture and uh, so we know about each other flesh and blood we know that there are humans and there are animals we understand that is a, a, a form of existence we believe that there is a God who is a spiritual being who's a creator of all things and then we believe there are spiritually created beings as well and we call those spiritually created beings angels. That's the, uh, the term that covers all of them. Whether it's archangels or whatever angels they are. Whether they are fallen angels like demons. Whatever is spiritual and created falls into that category of angel. And the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus was not an angel. And he goes to make the case and prove why he's not an angel. So that there's no thought in our mind that God created this angel. And sent him like, like a created son to die on our behalf. To take on flesh and die on our behalf. He's making the case that this is God himself. And he says this in the first chapter. He goes through all of these different parts. And if you've got, if you've got your Bible, you'll see it. He quotes from all different scriptures from the Old Testament to make this case. And he says, first of all, Jesus is the only son of God. He goes on and speaks about the fact that he is, he is called to, he is worshipped. That God invites us to worship him. And we know that God alone receives the worship. And so if Jesus is to be worshipped, he is God. He is called God by God. In verse 10 to 11, he is called the creator and he was um, instrumental in the creation of the heavens and the earth. The Bible says in, in Colossians that nothing was created that wasn't created through him. He is immortal, verses 10 to 12. He has all authority, chapter 1, 13, and 2, verse 8. The message is true because it comes from God's own Son, who, chapter 1, verse 3, says, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And that's why we can say that God is both the satisfied, the one who, who's propitiated, whose who's justice is satisfied, and the one who satisfies that because they remain the same person. Somebody prayed this morning in our prayer time, which was theologically incorrect, but I understand what he's saying. He said, Father, thank you for dying for us. Now, the Father didn't die for us, but the, the Godhead is one. When you pray to the Father, you're praying to the Son, when, you, when, you, when you're confronting confronted with the holy spirit you're being confronted by god they three yet one and so when we speak about god dying upon the cross it's true the god the son died god the father sent the son to die for us and so god is not some arbitrary deity he uh, or, or a deity that gets arbitrarily angry sometimes i could go to i can go to work for the day and and have to deal with some ornery people you know what that means they're just difficult people um, you won't believe some of the things that I have to deal with. Uh, some of you were with me last week, so you know I was dealing with you, man. And sometimes it's like, I can get home from work and be a little bit grumpy, and I can walk into the house, and uh, the dog can get in my way, biscuit, and I can give him a little drop kick. I don't kick the dog. I'm just saying illustrative purposes only, okay? But I, I do come home grumpy sometimes. And Lyndall say to me, you're grumpy, and I go, I'm not grumpy woman. And then, and then like half an hour later, I'll come to her, and I'll say, I'm sorry, I was grumpy. And she goes, I know you were grumpy. Because my moods go up and down. There's things that can set me off. God's mood doesn't go up and down. God isn't angry one day and then happy the next day. He isn't, It was, it's was more like he had, a, he had a bad thousand years and so now he's going to start smiting people all over the place. God is, we already said that he is perfectly just. And that's why even under the old covenant, the law was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It was not two eyes for one eye or two teeth for one tooth or half a tooth for a tooth. It was always perfect. And God will never punish us more than exactly what it is that we deserve. And the idea that God is like, just randomly like, you better satisfy me. I, this is what I want. I want something to die so that I can, I can forgive you again. It's an abomination. It's a, it's a caricature that doesn't reflect anything of the God that we serve. Listen to what the writer says in Hebrews 2, verses 9 to 10. He says, But we see him who was for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, So that by the grace of God, so that by the grace of God, so that by the grace of God the Father, He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that He, Jesus, for whom, oh no, sorry, that God, it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Now, some people get confused by that. They think when he says they have one source, that God the Father made the sanctifier, which is Jesus, and God the Father made the sanctified, which is us. That part's true. He did make us. But what he's saying, he's not talking about creative source. He's not talking about the one who created things. He's talking about the font from where this eternal redemptive story flows, which is the heart of God. It It is in the heart of God that this story first sprang up that this fallen people and the the plan to rescue them first sprung up was in the heart of the Father. And that's why it says in John 3, 16, For God, for God the Father, so loved the world that He sent His only Son, the one who will sanctify, that whoever believes in Him, the ones who will be sanctified, should not perish, taste taste death, or endure the sting of death, but have eternal life. Jesus is sent, but remember He is the exact imprint of the nature of the Father. Jesus demands justice as much as the Father demands justice. Jesus willingly complies with this plan of rescue that has been set for us. And so He tastes death for everyone. Bear in mind, yeah, that death is not the passing from one life to the next. Jesus did that. He died, but then He endured the punishment our sin warranted. The sting that we should have felt. The eternal punishment that our sin demands was not cast away it was not swept under a carpet it was not put into some pit it was visited upon Jesus Christ I often think about this that for the for the person that is mistreated or violated or whatever the worst kind of sin that you can think of that could be perpetrated on somebody their sense of they, they need justice for that don't they and if the person that did that to them comes to faith in Christ and their sins are washed away where is that justice gone how does that person ever receive justice Well, that punishment was spent upon Jesus Christ. What should have been done to that person, what should have been done to you, what should have been done to me was spent upon Jesus Christ. And that brings us full circle to the incarnation as God's outrageous pursuit of His wayward children. And so Jesus had to be human to be the high priest that represents us to God the Father. He had to be human in order to be able to taste death and die upon the cross. But he also had to be God so that his sacrifice was sufficient. The death of one man is not enough for the billions that need to be saved. And the, but the death of God is sufficient. And in the resurrection, God the Father says, your sacrifice is acceptable. And as I land, we come to one of those descriptions of Jesus that are scattered throughout the Bible that so often we just re- skip over and we don't um, kind of take for ourselves and meditate on. He calls Jesus a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And as we celebrate Christmas this year, as we celebrate the the incarnation, we remember that Christ became our high priest. But he he became like us in every way so that he would be a faithful and merciful high priest to us. As he represents us, he turns from facing God and turns to face us and gives to us what the Father wants. What does it mean? I'll swap those words around. What does it mean that he is faithful? I've often said to you guys that faithfulness, when applied to God, means that he will do what he said he will do. That's all it means. I, it's, somebody asked me when I was um, in India recently, if you could change one thing in the local church, what would you do? I'd say that people would be faithful, <laughs> that people would just do what they said they would do. And said, In fact, if I could just do that across my whole life in every area, that would be a, a mess. That would change everything for me. God is always faithful. He will always do what he said he will do. And it says here that, that Jesus, even though he faced temptation, he, he, he endured the suffering unto death. And Jesus proved to be faithful to the task. In chapter 3 and verse 2, it says that he was faithful to him who appointed him. And then in verse 10 it says, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus, from the from the day, that he was conceived in the, in the womb of Mary from his birth, his childhood, and through his whole life, was faithful to the task that God had given him, even to death upon the cross in our place. And he's proved himself to be trustworthy. Though he faced the temptation, of course, the enemy came to him when he was being tempted in the desert and said, if you will worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. He was offering him a shortcut, and he refused to take the shortcut. In the garden of Gethsemane, before he faced the cross, it says that he he anguished before God, and the anguish was so deep that his sweat fell down like like drops of blood. Father, if it's possible, take this cup of suffering from me. But he was faithful. Not my will be done, but yours. And he's proved faithful. We can trust this message. This message that has come through the Son is reliable. And the message is spoken to us through his virgin birth, through his sinless life, through his miraculous ministry, to his authoritative te- teachings, his substitutionary death, and his glorious resurrection. And Jesus says in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that message, as it resounds across the earth and through generation after generation, is the message the writer of Hebrews says pay attention to this. Do not drift away from what you have heard. Do not drift from having put your faith in Christ and trusted His finished work. The one who has made the one single sacrifice and sat down. Do not drift from that to now relying upon your own strength. Your own sense of your religiousness or keeping the law or keeping anything else. I depend upon Jesus. As we sang that song today. um, God, I cannot believe how much you love me. God, I cannot believe how much you love me. Like He loves me i am (laughs) he loves you he is faithful his message can be trusted lastly it says and won't the worship team please come up it says jesus is merciful you know nowhere in the old testament is it explicitly said that the uh, the priests are merciful it's not one of the things that's required for them to be priests but it says again and again in the Old Testament that Yahweh is merciful. When Moses asks God to show him his glory and he hides him in the cleft of the rock and puts his hand over it as he walks past, he declares his name and his mercy is, a, is, a, is a part of how he declares himself to be. And in the gospels we encounter Jesus Christ and the picture we have of Jesus is a perfect representation of the merciful Yahweh in his dealings with people. Whether it's the woman with the issue of blood or the woman caught in adultery or the the leper that nobody will touch that he touches, he is a man of mercy. And these two texts show us that in his experience and having taken on humanity and having lived on this earth and faced the temptations that we face and the trials that we face and trials that many of us have not faced, he he is made perfectly sympathetic to us as well. Chapter 2 and verse 18 says, Because he himself has suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. And then in chapter 4, verses 15 to 16, it says this. Please listen to this, friends. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. For he faced all the same testings we do, yet did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There he will receive, we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. The wonder of Christmas, of the incarnation is our salvation. The wonder that continues is that our, our high priest is, is a merciful and faithful high priest to us. I'm going to land with a quote in a moment from Octavius Winslow. That name Octavius it sounds like he comes from like Roman times, but he actually was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon in the 19th century. He died in about 1878. He had, he had 10 children. He was a preacher and, uh, and he knew some pain. His 21-year-old son, um, or his son, John, died when he was 21 years old. His daughter, I can remember her name, um, she died when she was a baby. And so he, he, he went through those times of pain. His wife died many years before he himself died. And so he understands what it, what it means to grieve. He understands what it means to lose. I'm sure like all men, he understands what it meant to be betrayed, to be let down by people around us that are supposed to care for us. it means to be cheated or misled, what it means to be disappointed in ourselves. And he writes this, and I think this captures the heart of what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us when he says he is a merciful high priest. He says, beloved, you know not how accurately and delicately the heart of Jesus is attuned to yours, whether the chord vibrates in a joyous or a sorrowful note. You are perhaps walking a solitary path. There is a peculiarity in your trial. It is of a nature so delicate that you shrink from disclosing it even to your dearest earthly friend. And though surrounded by human sympathy, yet there is a friend you still want, to whom you can disclose the feelings of your bosom. That friend is Jesus. Go to him. Open your heart. Do not be afraid. He invites. He bids you come. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, He is able to support those who are tempted. And as we land this morning, or this afternoon, I want to make two invitations to you, two opportunities for you to respond to what I've said today. One is for those that, are, that are, have not been reconciled to God the Father, that are on a journey, a spiritual journey, to understand, like, like why am I here? What, what meaning does my, my life have? Where am I going? God has spoken through His Son a word as clearly as can possibly be spoken. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And He has shown us and demonstrated beyond doubt how His birth, life, death, and resurrection was necessary in order for our sins to be forgiven. It's the only way. We cannot accomplish it through our good works. We cannot accomplish it by giving all our money away or being consumed by flames on behalf of anybody else. Can only depend upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. And my invitation to you today is to come through Jesus and be reconciled to God the Father. The Bible doesn't say that we have to go through some weird ritual or become a member of a church, even. It, it doesn't say anything. We don't have to even give up the, the things that we think are so important to us. What we have to do is surrender ourselves entirely to Jesus Christ and recognize that only through His life can we have the forgiveness of our sins that we repent of living according to our own way and choose His way. And the Bible says that that happens when we, when we call upon Him. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so in a moment as we worship, if you have felt the Spirit of God, and you, maybe you would know Him as that, beginning to draw you in, if the Father has opened the door and invited you to come in today, then won't you respond to Him? We say, Jesus, I trust you. And then after the meeting, we're going to have a team up here of, of ministers who will be happy to pray with you. And you come up and say, I I, I I, cried out to God today. Won't you pray with me as I receive Christ my Lord and Savior? The second response I want is for those that are already reconciled to God. The writer, <laughs> the writer of Hebrews says, pay attention. Don't drift. You know what happens is we start off so good and we trust Jesus and then we get knocked around by the things that happen in our lives. Maybe you've gone through a divorce. Maybe you're in a, in a in a difficult relationship. Maybe you've known sickness. Maybe you've 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 dealt with battles in your finances or whatever it is, an area of your life. Maybe you yourself have given yourself over to, uh, to, to wickedness or to sinful living and you, and you and you feel unworthy and ashamed. And the writer says, Hold on, man. Hold on. He has a faithful merciful high priest and for you to come boldly into his presence and to be reminded that this is it i said to the first meeting i was saying like um you know we all worship something See, why god calls us to worship him is because that's how it's what we were created to do we were created to worship The problem is when we don't worship God, we're worshiping something else. We're worshiping relationships, we're worshiping our careers, we're worshiping our popularity, we're worshiping our staggeringly good looks or whatever it is, depending on what category you fall into. But all of those things will fade away. The best of relationships can let us down. The the most amazing careers can collapse or or always come to an end. The finances are left behind. The good looks begin to fade under the, the sagging weight of wrinkles in our lives. But Jesus remains faithful. His work is done and finished. And that's why we worship Him. So won't you stand with me, please? I'm going to pray and then we're going we're to worship together. we we'll have sing that song again. God, how you've loved me. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I don't know who wrote this book. But thank you for them, Lord God. Thank you for this man or these men or these women that under the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wrote these incredible words that we might be able to put our eyes upon this king that was born for us. And that died for us. My prayer, Lord God, is that those that are searching would be that you would draw them this afternoon, Lord God, to you. Matter what anybody says from the stage, it doesn't matter how persuasive it is, or what anybody else does. Lord, if you call, who can resist? I pray that hearts would be open to you today, that even this this afternoon there would be some Lord who would call upon the name of Jesus, They would sing the song with a with a with a fresh devotion, a fresh surrender, a heart that has repented and placed its trust in you. And for the rest of us, Lord God, who know you, I pray would not forget Lord. thank you for Christmas whether Jesus was born on this actual date or not who cares this is the day we choose to remember thank you Jesus that you took on flesh and blood like us that you call us brothers that we are the children together with you of of the heavenly father and that that all has been made possible because you so graciously became like us And taste the death on our behalf. And now remain forever and ever and ever and ever. The faithful and merciful high priest through whom we come. And in your wonderful name we pray. Amen.